Shall we pray together once more? We come before you now, the King upon the throne. And we are conscious that you are not just our King, but you, O Lord, have given us a message. You have given us your holy word, the words of the King of heaven, spoken, written down, preserved, so that we might open it, read it, learn of you, be changed by the gospel, and be those whom you use to be then ministers of your word. And so, Father, we pray that we would be conscious now of that which we are doing. We are opening and reading and listening and studying the words of the King, the King of glory, the King of heaven and earth, the King of time, the King of eternity, the King of kings. And therefore, we cannot afford to be casual in our listening to it and our response to it. You are the king and therefore your words carry authority. And therefore, as we hear your word, it requires us to obey it. But Father, you know that as your subjects, we are a rebellious lot. And therefore, we will put up objections to what your word says to us today. We will harden our hearts. We will close our ears. But we pray that by means of your spirit, you would prevent us from doing that. So that we might have soft hearts, open ears, responsive minds and willing hands and feet. May we be like that man in James who studies the word of God intently and then does it. And so, Father, we ask, may you so work in us by means of your word and may we be your willing servants today to hear your word to us. And Father, may you grant me your grace to preach your word. For the glory of your name alone we pray. Amen. Well, no doubt when you heard that we were coming today and you understood who we are and what we do, you probably had a reasonably good idea what the sermon was going to be about today. People like us come and speak at churches. You expect to hear a message, something along the lines of this. Sell all you possess, quit your job, and move to the other side of the world and spend the rest of your life telling others about Jesus Christ. Well, if that's what you thought today's sermon is going to be about, you're right. That's what it's going to be about. However, I'm not going to tell you to quit your job or to sell all you possess or to uh, move to the other side of the world and tell others about Jesus unless that is what God is 
asking you to do. Instead, what we're going to see from God's Word this morning is that you're exactly where you need to be right now. Because where you are now, God has placed a harvest field around you. There is a harvest field right on your doorstep. You don't have to go to the other side of the world to find a harvest field to minister the gospel to. No, there's one right on your doorstep. You do not have the job you have. You do not live in the house that you live in. You do not have the circle of friends that you have by accident. God has placed you in your home, in your job, and in amongst that social circle for a reason. That is the harvest field that he has given to you. And it is his desire that you and I be responsible, obedient servants by seeking to reach that harvest that is right there on our doorstep. Of course, that's something that we find difficult, don't we? We, we have many objections that we, we put up to that. It immediately makes us feel uncomfortable. But I hope that this morning as we, we look at these words and these events in the life of Christ, that, that that will silence our objections. And it will give us the desire to then be obedient, to go out and seek to bring in the harvest that is right on our doorstep. Please turn back with me in your Bibles to that passage that was read earlier for us from Matthew chapter 9. We're going to pick up the reading from verse 35 and read through to verse 5a. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into this harvest. And he called to him his twelve disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. The name of the twelve apostles are these. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother. James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother. Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector. James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus. Simon, the Canaanian, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Well, I want us to look at four truths that come out of this passage this morning as we seek to reach the harvest on our doorstep. As I said, it it makes us feel uncomfortable. We, We raise many objections and excuses. It's something that we instinctively find hard. But I hope that these four truths this morning will again encourage you and motivate you to go out into the harvest field. 
And the first truth that I wish to draw your attention to is the confidence that we should have as we seek to make Christ known to those who are around us. There's a reason why I wanted us to read the whole of chapter 9, and that is because Matthew has arranged for us a series of events, a series of miracles that Christ performed, not just for our pleasure in reading it, not just to make a a nice-sounding story, but so that we can understand precisely who Jesus is and why we can have confidence in him as we proclaim the truth of who he is to others around us. What we see happening throughout chapter 9 is an incredible demonstration of the authority and the power of Jesus that, that sets him aside as completely unique to any other human being that has walked the face of this earth and therefore presents him as more than just being a man, but indeed being the God-man, the man who is able to save. And notice what it is that Jesus is able to save from. Notice what it is that Jesus has power and authority over that makes him so incredibly unique. We first see Christ's power and authority over the physical, over those who who suffer from that uh, which ails their body, uh, from physical disease and disability. We have the man who is paralyzed. We have the woman who suffers many years from the bleeding, and we have these two blind men. All of these people faced incurable situations. We're even told that uh, this, this woman had tried for, for many years to be cured of her ailment to no avail. And yet Christ, either with a, a single word or a short phrase or a gentle touch, is able to completely and instantaneously heal these people. He's able to do what the medical professionals of the day were unable to do. And they are completely restored. The the paralyzed man walks. This woman is healed. These blind men see all taking place instantly. His power and authority over the physical. But it goes even further than that. Because he has power and authority over death itself. What a tragic moment that must have been for the ruler as he he saw his daughter's life slip away before his very own eyes. But then he hears the the report, Jesus is in town. And and so in faith, he rushes to Christ. He urges him, come to my home, such as this man's apparent faith in Christ. He believed Jesus was able to undertake, even though his daughter was already dead. And what an incredible moment that must have been as the disciples witnessed how Christ walked into that room and simply took this lifeless corpse by the hand and it instantly was restored to life. The little girl, we're told, arose. Told in the other Gospels, she got up and walked around the room. What an incredible, incredible demonstration of power and authority. But it doesn't even end there. 
Christ has power over the physical. Christ has power over death. Christ has power over the demonic, over the devil. We have this this man who is demon-oppressed and mute as a result of it. And in an instant, he is set free from that demonic oppression. The demons flee at the sight, at the name, at the command of Christ. He casts this demon out. His power over the devil and the demonic. But perhaps greatest of all, Jesus has power and authority to be able to forgive sin. You think of the paralytic here. There's a a double healing in this passage. The man is physically healed, and whilst that is incredible and, and miraculous, the man faces a greater problem, the problem of his sin. This paralyzed man would ultimately die one day and stand before God and therefore give an account of his life and be judged according to his sin. And should he perish without Christ, he would then face an eternal condemnation. And so Christ performs an even greater, a lasting, and eternal healing by forgiving this man's sin. And in fact, he states it very simply to the scribes so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins on earth. I say to the man, rise up, pick up your bed, and go home. How incredible is Matthew's presentation to us of who Jesus is. He has absolute power and authority over the things that you and I have no power and authority over, the physical, over death, over the the spiritual realms, over sin itself. What Matthew wants us to understand is that Jesus Christ is the complete Savior. There is no one on the face of the earth that Christ is not able to redeem. And it doesn't matter how perilous or or how terrible or how wretched their situation may be. There's not a single person on the face of the earth that Christ is not able to redeem. And that should give us tremendous confidence as we go out and proclaim to those around us the harvest on our doorstep, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because we're not just telling them about a man, we're telling them about Jesus Christ. Hopefully all of you in your home have numerous cleaning products. It's become quite a fashionable thing to have in our homes with the rise of COVID. I don't think we've ever bought so many cleaning products in our life. And they all have this same little badge or claim on them. It says, this product is able to kill 99.9% of known germs and bacteria, which is great, except for the 0.1%, it does not kill. Now, for me, that's what I'm more concerned about. I'm not concerned about the ones you do kill. I'm concerned about the ones you don't kill. And of course, they they cannot put 100% on their product because they cannot have such absolute confidence in the ability of their product to destroy every germ or bacteria that you use to clean with. But here's the thing. When we proclaim Christ, when we proclaim the gospel to those around us, we're not proclaiming a Savior who's 99.9% able to save. Now, he is 
100% able to save. So even that person at work that you think is, is possibly the most wretched person you've ever met, or your neighbor who, who irritates you unbelievably, and who you feel lacks every sense of human decency, he is able to save them. What confidence that should give us to share the gospel with those around us. He is the 100% Savior, able to save anyone. And of course, that confidence should motivate us to proclaim the gospel. But there's a, there's a second truth that I want to draw your attention to, a second source of motivation, and that is that we should not just be motivated by the confidence we have in Christ, but also by the compassion of Christ. Verses 35 and 36, we read of Jesus going throughout all the cities and the villages, and wherever Jesus goes, he's just surrounded by crowds and crowds of people. I don't know about you, but for me, I find constant crowds of people to be an annoyance, and it irritates me. A few weeks back, Joel and I had the privilege of going to watch a game at Crystal Palace, and uh, after the game, Joel wanted to go and, and meet the players and get some autographs. And so we, we waited and waited and waited and waited and waited until our fingers were numb. And eventually the players came out. And I felt for them because the moment they came out of the dressing room, they were just swarmed. Mostly with children and a few adults. All wanting an autograph, all sticking a, a pen and a book or a pen and a shirt or a pen and a football in their face saying, sign it, sign it, sign it. And I thought, how would I cope with that week after week after week? I can't, I can't even go to the shop without being pestered by somebody. I'd be greatly annoyed. And yet, through many parts of Christ's ministry, he was constantly surrounded by people, yet his response is never that of annoyance. It's never that of irritation. Never, listen, I don't have time for you. Go away. Just leave me alone. And what is his response? Well, well, Matthew tells us when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them. You see, when Christ looks at people, he understands exactly who and what they are. And, and when he understands that, that moves him to compassion. He knows that they are created in the image of God. They are equally precious and loved by God, irrespective of who they are, gender, race, and age. He understands that they are all eternal created to live forever and ultimately were created to live in relationship with him, but, but through their sinfulness have spurned that relationship and continue to spurn and, and turn away from him, and, and therefore they are lost. They're not just lost, but, but cannot find the truth and, and therefore will face his judgment and justice. He, he knows their end. He understands how lost, how harassed and helpless they are. I wonder if we truly understand how lost people are today, how harassed and helpless they are. What's, what's the goal of life for a sheep? What's its ambition? What does it wake up in the morning saying, I want to achieve today, if sheep could think such lofty thoughts? Well, it's not to be your Sunday roast, 
It's where's my next tuft of green grass? Or where's the next food pellet that's going to come from the farmer's bucket and they spend their whole life looking for the next green tuft, looking for the next food pellet? But the the problem the sheep has is that it's always hungry. It always needs to eat more and more and more and more. And its, it's hunger is, is never satisfied. And it finds itself turning this way and that way and every way just to find that next morsel of food. And, well, isn't that the same as the world today? Everybody trying to find what they think might finally satisfy that hunger within. And they turn this way and that way, but they never find it. And yet Christ sort of comes into the the chaos of this world and he says, I am the good shepherd. I am the, the true bread of heaven. I am the true water of life. He who eats of me, he who drinks of me will never hunger, will never thirst. The true shepherd who's come to bring you into the, the flock of God to give you abundant life. See, when he sees people, he understands exactly who and what they are. And he has to respond compassionately by telling them of who he is. He responds by preaching the gospel. Are we... We need to develop this sight. We need to develop this compassion. Now, this might come to you as a shock and a surprise today. But understand this. You are not the only human being in the world. You say, well, of course I know that. Of course I do. But see, here's the thing is so often the people around us, we strip them of their humanity. We see them merely as service providers, as people who exist for my convenience. I go and do my weekly shopping at Tesco's or Sainsbury's or wherever it is you do it. When you look at the cashier, you do not say, here is another human being, eternal, created in the image of God and loved by God. You say, here is the person who is responsible for scanning my groceries as quickly and efficiently and correctly as possible. When you stand on the platform waiting for your train, you do not see the train driver As a human, eternally created by God and loved by him, one for whom Christ died, you see him as the person who is invariably making you late for work. The person who couldn't keep the train on time. We strip those around us of their humanity. We need to stop doing that. We need to start looking at people through the eyes of Christ. And maybe we're afraid to do that. Because we know that if we look at our neighbor with the eyes of Christ, if we look at our work colleagues or our boss or our manager or maybe a certain family member or friends with the eyes of Christ, we know what response that's going to produce within us. How we need to resist that urge to strip people of their humanity and look at people through the eyes of of Christ. Because when we look at people through the eyes of Christ, all of our objections and all of our excuses will melt away. And we will respond in the same way that Jesus did, by proclaiming the gospel. We can have confidence 
in Christ whom we proclaim. We should have the compassion of Christ for that harvest that's on our doorstep, for those in our street and our workplace and our social circle. But thirdly, we should also have a sense of urgency. Notice what Jesus says in verse 37. The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. He's saying to his disciples, look around you. The harvest is ready. It's ready to be brought in. Now we obviously understand what Jesus means by that. But perhaps there's one aspect that we seldom consider about this. Let me ask you this. If a farmer looks out on his field, and let's say it's fields of grain, and he sees that they've turned that rich golden color, he understands the grain needs to be harvested. It is now ready to be harvested. But if he, he sees that and then decides, you know what, I'm going to leave it a month. What happens to that crop that he's looked at? What happens to it? Well, some of it gets eaten by the birds, and the rest of it rots away. He will lose his harvest if he does not bring it in when it's ready. Every person around us may be eternal, But whilst they are on this earth, they are physically mortal, which means they will die. Every person, as much as we don't like to think about this, has a countdown clock over their lives. Hebrews 9.27, it is appointed for man to die once and then face the judgment of God. And that means there is a sense of urgency. Because for every single person around us, the day of grace will end for them. The time of God's salvation for them one day will close. And then there will be no more time for them. We are too quick to forget that. To forget everyone's just like us, created in the image of God, loved by God, eternal yet sinful, and facing the eternal judgment of God. And as believers in Jesus Christ, as those who read and believe the Bible, we know what that judgment and punishment will be. Of course, it's, a, it's an incredibly unpopular subject today to, to speak about hell, to describe it as a place of of eternal suffering and torment, a place where the fire and worm never dies. But the truth is, that's not how we describe it. That's how Christ himself describes it. No one spoke more about the realities of hell than Christ did. And that is why he continued to preach the gospel, because he knew what awaited those who did not repent and believe in him. He had such a deep compassion for people. He understood who and what they are and what they face without him. And therefore, he had an urgency in proclaiming the gospel. 
to those around him. When you look at people in the eye, tomorrow morning when you go to work and you look at your colleagues in the eye, when you next have an interaction with your neighbor or or someone on your street and you look them in the eye, understand that you are looking at a human being who is eternal yet physically mortal. And they are in desperate need of Christ, and perhaps many of them do not actually understand how desperately they need Christ. There is a limit to their time on this earth. They will not always be there. And we will not always have another opportunity. We will not always have tomorrow. Jesus says the harvest is ripe now. Not next week, not next month, not next year. It's ready now. We need to be awake to that reality. The crop is ready to be harvested, and part of that crop dies every day. I could quote the global mortality rate but that's such an astronomically high figure that we don't really relate to it. And that's, that's far and it's the whole world. But well, what if we just considered the UK? Well, according to the statistics I found, if they are accurate, it's believed that on average nearly 2,000 people in the UK die every day. That's our doorstep. That's our harvest field, the United Kingdom. Which means 2,000 people die today and tomorrow and the day after and the day after and the day after. By the end of the week, 14,000 people. 14,000 heads of grain will lie dead in the field, will have stood before God and given an account for their lives. There is an urgency to the task. We will not always have time. And that brings us to our fourth and final truth. We can have confidence in whom we proclaim. We need to be motivated by the compassion of Christ. We need to see people for who they truly are and understand that there's an urgency in the task that we have been given. And therefore, we need to be obedient to the tasks that we have been given which is to go and reach that harvest on our doorstep. We need to be obedient to the will of God, which is to be those very laborers that go out into the field. And we know that that's what Jesus means, because as soon as he he tells his disciples, look, the harvest is ready, the laborers are few, pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest, what's the very next thing Jesus does? He sends... The disciples out and says, right, go and take the message you've heard me proclaiming to those around you. Of course, we need to pray for God to specifically raise up people to go to the far-flung ends of the earth, or the far corners of the harvest field. But when it comes to the harvest field that immediately surrounds us, the, the harvest field that is the street that we live on, or the office in which we work, or the, the circle of friends that surrounds us, or the country we live in, 
Well, we are the laborers in that place. That's the portion of the field that has been entrusted to us to go and labor in. Or perhaps we're, we're afraid to pray that. Perhaps we're afraid to pray that, that, that God would send laborers into the harvest that's on our doorstep. Perhaps we're afraid to pray, God, please send someone to witness to the people in my street or to witness to the people in my place of work. Perhaps we're afraid to pray that because we probably already know what the answer is. Because the more we pray for God to do that, the more we know he's going to start working in our own hearts and telling us, well, you're that laborer. You're that worker. I've put you in that street. I've put you in that office. I've put you in this church for that very reason and purpose. Now, of course, we then make a whole litany of excuses as to why we can't do that. I, I, I'm not qualified enough. How would I even know what to say to somebody? I'm too busy. They won't listen to me. I might lose my job and, and be plunged into economic ruin. They might in, insult me. It's not my spiritual gifting. If we carried on reading chapter 10, Jesus essentially addresses all of those excuses. I don't know what to say. The Holy Spirit will give you the words to say at the right time. I'm afraid I might lose my job. I might be plunged into economic ruin. What does he say? A choir, no silver or gold, no copper for your belts, no bag for your journey. I I will provide. If you go out and faithfully proclaim it, I will take care of you. It might not be to your standard, but I will take care of you. I will supply you with all that you need to be able to do this task. And so, we need to actually ask ourselves, are our excuses actually legitimate? Or are they just simply excuses? And we are being disobedient. We need to take a moment to look around the world, to look around just our street, our community, our place of work, and we will see that we are surrounded by a vast harvest field. And we are the ones who are called. In fact, we are not just called, we are commanded to go into that field and bring in the harvest. As I've already said, you live where you live, you work where you work, because that's where God wants you to be his faithful laborer. So what is stopping you? What is hindering you? Is it because you're not confident? You're not confident that people might listen to your... You're not certain if if Christ can actually save someone... That's like the hat. Well, Matthew has reminded us that we can have absolute confidence in Christ. He is 100% able to save. And perhaps for you today, the challenge is, is, to, is to pray and ask God to help you understand just how much confidence you can have in Christ and to then start acting in confidence, proclaiming Christ. Perhaps 
for you today the challenge is the same as it is for me. You lack compassion. I lack compassion. I'm often not a very compassionate person. I, I reach annoyance much quicker than I reach compassion. For me, the challenge is that I, I need to start more and more looking at people through the eyes of Christ instead of just stripping them of their humanity and seeing them as being there for my benefit. Perhaps today the challenge is for you to pray and to ask God to open your eyes so that you might see people for who they really are. You might see your neighbor and your work colleague and your boss and your manager and your friend for who they really are. That God might soften your heart and give you compassion. Compassion to tell them of Christ. Or perhaps it's because you think, well, I will always have tomorrow. That friend, that neighbor, that boss, that manager, they're young. They're in good health, as fit as a fiddle. They've got many years. I'll still have time. Perhaps the challenge for you today is to pray and to ask God to help you understand the sense of urgency that there is. That we will not always have tomorrow just as those around us will not always have tomorrow. And therefore to actively seek to share the gospel, understanding that the day will draw to a close and we do not know when. Or maybe it's because you're simply being disobedient and you know that. And perhaps today the challenge is for you to repent of that disobedience, to seek God's forgiveness for that disobedience and to then pray for a renewed obedience. And to then act in obedience to proclaim the gospel. Friends, there is a harvest field on our doorstep. It surrounds us each and every day. We can have absolute confidence in the one whom we proclaim. But there is an urgency about the task. We have been sent by our master to be his laborers. The question is, will we be faithful laborers? Let's pray together. Our gracious God and Father, how we thank you. We thank you firstly for the incredible salvation that you have bestowed upon us in and through the Lord Jesus Christ. That you had compassion upon us. That you rescued us from being harassed and helpless. And thank you that as you fill us with that eternal hope, so you say to us, now go and tell others. We think of those as blind men who went away and spread the fame of Jesus wherever they went. Oh, Father, help us to be like that. Those who see the harvest on our doorstep and who seek to spread the fame of Jesus across it who understand that our neighbors and our friends and our, our family and our work colleagues and those who stand on the platform next to us every morning or every evening, they need Christ. And so each and every day we pray, remind us of the confidence we can have. Give us the compassion of Christ. Open our eyes that we may see people for who they are as you see them. Help us to understand the urgency and by your Spirit, 
Help us to be obedient. Help us to be those who see it as the joy of their lives to go forth and tell of all that which Christ has done. In whose name we pray all this. Amen. We're going to close by singing that uh, wonderful hymn, Go Forth and Tell, O Church of God Awake. And you won't just be singing that, but that you will be praying that and, and putting your name in there as it were, that God may send you forth to tell the gospel. We stand together and sing.